uh, calls it his rake story. The rake symbolizing a pretty significant moment in his life that redefined his relationship with his dad. He writes about this time when he was a young boy and he was in the living room looking through the window when he saw his dad uh, out front raking the leaves. And he thought, man, I want to go and help my dad. And the reason, he writes, that he wanted to help his dad in that moment was that he just wanted to spend some time with his dad. He wanted to be around his dad. He wanted to rub shoulders with his dad. He wanted to just be there to talk to him. But that's not what happened. He went out there and said, hey, dad, can I help you rake the leaves? And his dad immediately responded with, yes, that's a great idea. You rake the leaves and that'll free me up to go and do another project. And so that's what happened. Before Keith could get a word in, his dad had handed him the rake and disappeared. And he writes, in that moment, my relationship with my dad was completely redefined. We never spent much time talking because work was always more important than relationships. Getting things done quietly, quickly, the best way possible, was way more important than wasting our time on silly conversations. He said, I felt when I was around my dad that I related to him more like a boss and an employee than a father and a son. I would guess that many of us could probably relate to that in some fashion. Many of us, it's not with our earthly dads. Maybe you had a really good relationship with your dad. But what I'm talking about is the bigger picture, right? As this man, Keith, this boy, Keith, wanted to pursue his dad and was left wanting, many of us have done the same thing. We have pursued that feeling of being desired that feeling of being loved and cared for and been left wanting, wanting something more than what was actually given to us. In fact, I would say that many of us spend all kinds of money and resources and time in the pursuit of feeling loved. If you think about it, a lot of what you spend your money on, a lot of what you spend your time on, a lot of the things you talk about are all in an effort so that you can feel and experience some level of love. John Eldridge has written quite a bit in this, uh, in this area, and he writes that uh, there's two questions that kind of well up in the life of a young boy and a young girl, that as they grow, these questions become really driving forces in their life. Many of us will relate to this, too. He starts out with the young boy. He said, for a young boy from a very early age, some of our earliest memories, we can remember a question in our heart welling up, asking this question and seeking for the answer to this question in a variety of areas, they'll ask the question, do I have what it takes? And many of us, we can remember asking that question, right? Just think about it. If you've ever said, hey, mom, hey, dad, watch this. Check this out. As you get ready to jump a ramp on your bike and like break your arm, right? Or maybe you remember like playing sports and like, hey, I want them to be at the game. I just want them to see that I made the team, that I have what it takes. And maybe they didn't make it to the game. And as we grow older, we begin to look to multiple things to answer that question that kind of rises up in our heart. Do I have what it takes? We look to sports. Boys do oftentimes. It makes them highly competitive. They're trying to prove to everybody else around them that they are worthy of what they're doing. They have what it takes to be successful. You might transfer that to relationships. You might transfer it to grades, picking a school, ultimately your career and your work as you compete with coworkers and friends and the level of success that they have, all in an effort to try to prove to yourself that you do have what it takes, that you are worthy of being loved that way. And we put a lot of our time and energy into answering that question. He says, well, the question's a little different for girls. 
See, it's similar but different. A young girl from her earliest memories will have this question well up in her heart. And look, I know there are exceptions. Some of you are like, there's exceptions to this. Not everybody's, I'm going to email you. Don't email me. It's like for the most part, this is how it works. But the question that wells up in a young girl's heart is, do you adore me? And she can remember early memories of being around family members, just seeking that adoration to know that you're the apple of their eye, that you're the princess in the story. As you grow older, you begin to look for that in different things. Oftentimes, compromising and making decisions that you know you shouldn't make, all in an effort to feel just a little bit of that adoration. I want to be adored. Oftentimes, it comes in the form of boys that show up. And if you're not getting that adoration at home, you start looking for it in these young men who show up and they begin to make you feel a little bit of adoration. And so you start to make these different decisions. You know, the kind of boy that's not showing up to my house without a trouble, okay? <laughs> that kid shows up and shows a little bit of adoration and look what happens. And it can be the same. It can be sports. It can be grades. It can be accomplishments. It can be a career. But we put so much effort trying to convince ourselves that we are, or at the very least, that we are worthy of being adored. Do I have what it takes? Do you adore me? Add sin to this, this problem that we have with sin, and it complicates it even more. You're adding another layer of complication to a question that wells up in our hearts, and it just confuses everything for us. Let me illustrate it for you this way. Back in 2010, uh, and to this day, one of the top five TED Talks of all time was Dr. Brene Brown's The Power of Vulnerability. Many of you have probably watched it, as along with 61 million other people that have watched this TED Talk. Now, I don't agree with everything Brene Brown teaches, but in this particular talk, she introduces what she thinks is the ultimate complication to our relational turmoil. And she says that it's shame. I would say that it's sin, and shame manifests itself. It shows itself, sin does, through our shame. But in shame, she defines it this way. Shame is our fear of being disconnected from other people. And so we make a lot of decisions based on that fear because our mindset is, if you really knew me, if you knew where my mind went, if you knew the thoughts that I had, you would not want to be connected to me. So we make decisions in an effort to not reveal that real self to someone else. If you understood the thoughts that I have, the mistakes that I've made, the hurt that I've caused, you would not want to be my friend. You would not want to be married to me. You would not want to be close to me. And so we make decisions to push people just far enough away where they don't see the real version of us. In other words, shame and sin lead us to say, I don't have what it takes. And I'm not worthy of being adored. And from there, our lives kind of take a different direction. And with all of the resources we put into pursuing better answers to those questions, and with all the time that we put into it, and all the study that we put into it, all the effort that we put into it, the real question we come back to is this. What does it really feel like? What is it really like to be loved? I mean, to really experience love, the kind of love that would change the way that we live, the kind of love that would answer those questions that well up in our hearts that drive our decision-making, having the answer to that question, what does life look like on the other side of experiencing that level and that kind of love? That's what we're going to look at today in the Bible. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 22. Not the normal passage for a Christmas Eve sermon, but stay with me, all right? I think the story of Abraham and Isaac can reveal quite a bit to us about the profound nature of love as it relates to our relationship to God. While you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of background. God comes to Abraham 
and he uh, offers him a blessing that comes with a decision that has to be made. He says, I want to use you to bless all people for all time, but it requires that you obey me pretty radically. You have to leave and come with me. You have to follow me. And so that's what Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three say, I want you to leave your father's home. I want you to leave everything familiar to you, every bit of safety that you understand. And I want you to follow me. Everything you know is about to change. And I'll tell you where you're going after we get on the road. Would you come and follow me? And so that's exactly what he does. But he does it for a variety of reasons. One, the creator of the universe says, go, pretty good idea to listen. The other side of that, though, is the promise that was made. You see, God promised Abraham. He said, if you'll follow me, I will bless all people through your descendants, through your children. And here's the hiccup. Abraham and his wife, her name at the time, Sarai, who would later be Sarah, Abraham and Sarah were past what they would say were childbearing uh, age. They were old. And they'd waited their whole life to be able to have a child. And they had waited and waited and waited and nothing was coming. And so God comes and says, I want to bless all of humankind through your children if you will follow me. And so, yeah, I'm going to follow you because I've waited my whole life for this blessing to come. And that's what we want to do. But the fulfillment of that promise took a long time. Year after year would pass, circumstance, decision, situation they're having to go through. And all the while waiting on the fulfillment of this promise that they said was coming, that we were going to have a child, we we're going to have a son, and yet that son hasn't come yet. We want this son, he's not coming. And they keep thinking, man, we don't have all of these other years to give to the waiting. And then finally they have a son and he is everything to them. Every dream they ever dreamt found its fulfillment in this boy, Isaac. They had everything they'd ever worked for. And if you're reading the story, you would think this is the climax of their life. Like, this is it. And you'd be wrong. Because God still had many things to teach them and through them to teach us. And so if you would, stand with me for the reading of God's word. In Genesis chapter 22, as we look at this encounter that Abraham has with God. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance, and he said to his servant, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and we will, come back with you. we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire in the night. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went out together. When they had reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. Because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. This is God's word. You can be seated. Merry Christmas. <laughs> You're like, what kind of church? <laughs> it's a pretty intense passage, and a lot of people take issue with this. 
for a lot of reasons, obviously. Part of the issue is why in the world would God ever ask Abraham to participate in something like this, even though we can tell in the text that it was a test. I mean, right away, we're told this was a test. And yet still, why would you even let him participate in this? And the reason I think we wrestle with that is because we come from a place where our minds are very individualistic. We determine the success of our life, the direction of our life based on our individual achievements, the goals that we set, the things that we overcome. But in ancient days, all of that, the goals that you set, the dreams that you dreamed, all rested on the firstborn son. I mean, he was the pinnacle of the family. He was the one that would carry on the family name. He's the one that would ensure that your family wouldn't die with the oldest man in the family. And so everything rested on this son. And if you remember, Abraham and Sarah had waited so long to have this son, so long to know that the purpose of their life would not be in vain, so long to know that their family name would continue, so long to know that they would not be outcast compared to all of their friends and everybody else that was around them that was having sons and was passing on the family name. They'd waited forever and were even well beyond childbearing years. And they finally got this son. And it's easy when something like that happens. For that thing, whatever it is, to begin to take a place in your heart that's over and above the one who gave you that good gift. You see, it would be easy for Abraham and Sarah to slip into a place where the love they had for their son surpassed in their heart the love that they had for God. And so the text tells us God tested that. He tested it. Not because he wanted to bring harm to them, not because he wanted to punish them, but because he wanted to remind them that the worship that they were offering belongs to the one who gives the gift, not to the gift. And so that's what he reminded them of. And if you look at the the way they kind of passed the test, like, look, there's a lot of clues in the text that Abraham had a lot of confidence, right? The first thing is he tells his servants, you stay here, we're going to go and we will come back to you. And he tells Isaac, hey, the Lord will provide the offering. So there's confidence that he was going to get through this in him, sure. But at the same time, the difficulty of this test for him to overcome that test And it says at the end, it says, Abraham, now I know that you fear God. Now I know that you love me because you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. Man, that's profound. I've been chewing on that verse all week, sincerely. And I think to myself, like when you're studying the Bible, when you study scripture, when you open your Bible, it is all about Jesus. So everything in your Bible that happened before Jesus points to Jesus. Everything that happens after Jesus points back to Jesus. He's the centerpiece of the entire story of God. And so when you read a story like this, one of the things to do is to look forward and say, how does this point me closer to Jesus? How does the story of Abraham and Isaac on this mountain point me closer to Jesus? And is it not for us a place we can go where we say with even more profound feeling than what we read in the Old Testament. When we come to the life of Jesus and say, now we know, God, that you love us. Now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your one and only son, whom you love, from us. See, that's the beauty of Christmas. See, from the very beginning of your Bible, the very first pages of your Bible, you see a glimpse of what love and connection looks like between God and his people when God is with Adam and Eve and there is this complete and total knowledge of one another. There's this love that takes place and then sin enters the picture. Their decisions uh, to, to go away from God enters the picture and creates this wedge between them and God where the fulfillment of that is no longer accessible to them. 
And from that moment, their sinful choices led them on a journey to find the answer to the question that welled up in their hearts. Do I have what it takes? Am I adored? And to go look in a variety of different things instead of in the one who gave them that heart to have that question in to begin with. Instead of going to God, we go to so many other things to look for the answer to these questions. And you see, the story of the Bible then is this story of them searching and God pursuing. I love the way Sally Lloyd-Jones in her theological masterpiece, the Jesus Storybook Bible, describes the Bible. She says, the Bible is one continuous story of God loving his children with a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love and coming to their rescue. Coming to their rescue. I struggle with this because I've struggled with pursuing feeling loved in so many other places personally. I started out pursuing it in just people's compliments and just seeking, man, I need someone to show me love. And I would do that through sports. I would do that through school. When I got to seminary, I did it through, I wanted to learn a lot and and, and lead in a church in a pretty profound way. And so a lot of my decision-making was not about the depth of my relationship with God as much as this desire to know more. In fact, I would say many of us, when you hear a sermon on love, you bristle because there's not enough doctrine. Well, maybe you've not actually spent enough time sitting in the truth that God loves you. That that's what you pause to celebrate at Christmas. That you celebrate that this is the culmination of the rescue plan. That Jesus was born to answer the deepest questions of your heart and your life. This is what the Bible means when it says God is love. He's the answer to all of your deepest questions. He is the fulfillment of it. And because of that, you can live a life that is a different direction than the pursuit of the answer to the question because you'll already have it. But I think we get hung up on some things. We read, God is love. Yes, love. But here's, here's our downside, right? This is my struggle with it. So maybe you don't struggle with this and bless your heart. I struggle with our language. I feel like the English language is like not great in a lot of ways. And one of the ways is we have one word to describe love love. And so I describe the most surface level things that I appreciate using that word. And then I describe the deepest recesses of my heart and affection with that same word. Let me give you an example. I was thinking, right? I've said it since then, but as of the writing of this sermon, here is the last thing I said I loved. Jaden has one dollar bill, (laughs) one quarter, and two pennies. How, how How much money does he have? Jaden broke. <laughs> See, I had the same response. Jaden broke. Like, I, I love that, right? And I said, man, I love that kid's laugh. I've watched that a hundred times because I love his laugh. And so I'll say, man, I love his laugh. Or, or for me, I'll say, I love ice cream. I love ice cream. Some of you don't like it. Repent, okay? <laughs> I love pizza. I'm a big, like I love, for us, I love Chinese food on Christmas Eve. So like after, in between all these services, I go home and we order Chinese food every Christmas. I love Chinese food. And then I can say, I love my wife. I love my kids. And it requires that I go into a long explanation of the depth of that love because our language fails us. But in scripture, love is described different than this in a variety of ways. It kind of, one of the most popular ones that's most taken out of context, it's a time for 
another explanation. It's 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And it describes the love of God in a variety of ways. Let me give you one small example of this. In 1 Corinthians 13, 7, Paul describes love this way. It says, love bears all things. Love bears all things. Now, that doesn't mean it puts up with it or tolerates it, like maybe your mind goes to, right? Like love tolerates all the frustrations of life, all in the name of love. Well, no, that's not what it means. The word that's used there is a unique word. It's the word stego. And it was used in a variety of different ways. Let me give you a couple examples because I think it helps us. The first is uh, a ship at sea, particularly a ship crossing the Mediterranean Sea that would hit a storm. And if you've seen a ship in a major storm with big waves getting tossed around the water like a yo-yo, this word bears all things means this is the kind of ship that can get caught in a storm and not sink. No matter how bad the storm gets, no matter how powerful the waves are, the ship doesn't sink. It's also used to describe a roof a roof that was underneath a torrential downpour and the rain is coming down so hard, but the roof stego, the roof doesn't leak. The roof bears all things. And no matter how bad that storm is, no matter how hard that rain falls, the roof never leaks. The third way is a soldier who's protecting a city. A soldier would protect a city, right? And so under attack, no matter how bad the attack, no matter how scared the soldier was, no matter how dangerous the enemy was, this soldier would stay, go bear all things and not give up the walls of the city. And so when Paul describes love bears all things, what he's saying is here's the kind of love that never leaves you. Here's the kind of love that will not abandon you, let you down, no matter how bad your decision-making's been, no matter how difficult your life has been, no matter how unloved you feel, no matter how many different sources you've gone to, to answer the deepest questions in your heart. Only the love of God will bear all things. And when it does, it will never fail you. And what we celebrate in Christmas is the taking out of the word love and the input, not of your name, but of the name of Jesus. And so you read 1 Corinthians 13, 7 on Christmas by saying, Jesus bears all things. He is the answer to every question your heart has ever cried out for. And we come to Christmas to celebrate it to celebrate the birth of our Savior, the one who went on a rescue mission for us as we were pursuing everything else in life to answer our heart's questions, proving ourselves to other people, looking for affirmation from everyone else and everything else around us, our achievements, our success, our money, our power, our family, our friends, our coworkers, whatever it is, fill in the blank that continues to fail you, continues to not satisfy that heart's desire all comes to a head on Christmas morning when God says, I am the answer. And we look at him and we say, God, now I know that I'm loved. Now I know that I'm loved because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. God is love? Oh, yeah. And that love changes everything. Why? Because now for the rest of my life, when I encounter the love of Christmas, the beginning of this rescue mission that would culminate in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, when I encounter that love, I now make my decisions. I now pursue my goals. I now dream my dreams from a place of love, not in pursuit of it. And that makes all the difference in the world. So this Christmas, this Christmas Eve, this beautiful Christmas Eve where we celebrate the coming of our Savior, I encourage you pause long enough to remember the gift and how it redefines everything about you. Let's pray.
Father, thank you that you never fail, that you bear all things. And we look for that in so many other things in our lives, and we allow so many other things to define who we are and what we pursue and what we dream about. And Christmas is this beautiful celebration, easily distracted, God. We are so easily distracted by parties and get-togethers and gifts and money and debt and celebrations and traditions, broken relationships, mourning and pain. And yet the beauty of this is that all of those things that fail us, we're reminded of where we can find real love. That Christmas allows us to stop long enough in the midst of all those distractions to remember that those things can't fulfill us. Our fulfillment comes from only one place, and that's from you. And so, Father, this Christmas, we thank you for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We give our thanks in his name. Amen. We're going to respond to Christmas by taking communion. Just a few moments for you to sit and to celebrate all that God did for you. How that moment, the death, the burial, the resurrection, but the incarnation and perfect life of Jesus as well has redefined everything about you. And this is a time for you to maybe sit and repent and sit and reflect and sit and express your gratitude for a really good God who didn't leave us in the dark, but sent his son, his only son, who he loved for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these moments and we offer them to you in the name of Jesus, your son whom you love, who you did not withhold from us. And we thank you for the love that we find in him. In Jesus' name.